Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us because we're going to be talking about such a big issue, um, such a fundamental issue for human survival, and that is water. And our guest today couldn't be any better positioned to give us subject matter expertise on where we're at and where we need to go. We're joined today by Jeff Keitlinger. He is the recently retired general manager and CEO of the largest water utility in the United States, the Metropolitan Water District. And we are so excited to talk with you, Jeff. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Hi, Jill. Pleasure to be here. Well, the last time we had you on the show was back in 2016, and we were all looking forward to coming out of a significant drought. And uh, we did have a couple of pretty wet years in between then and now. But I want to start our discussion by having you talk to us about where we're at right now. People are throwing around the word mega drought. And I want to ask you, are we in a mega drought? And if so, how does that change the game for water utilities in drought stricken areas? I, I think it's a correct point that we are really facing. If, it, if you don't want to call it mega drought, uh, just sort of uh, eternal drought or nonstop drought, never ending drought, we if you look at the last 20-some years, since basically about 2000, uh, the American Southwest has been in drought pretty much nonstop. There's been the occasional wet year here and there. Uh, but we had drought emergency uh, in 2006 timeframe declared by Governor Schwarzenegger, 2006-2009. Then we had a drought emergency declared by uh, Governor Jerry Brown in the 14-15 timeframe. And uh, now we have a drought emergency declared by Governor Newsom. Uh, the last three governors have had to declare drought emergencies in California. The Colorado has lost about 60% of its storage over the same period. So you're seeing nonstop drought. And, and th- that really is our current condition and likely to be so for uh, decades to come in the American Southwest. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that mean um, when we look at those kinds of trends, what does that mean for the water utilities that are in those areas? You know, how does that change, you know, how they've been doing business or or does it? Well, well it does. It means we really have to think about terms of instead of just sort of the occasional three-year drought, you have to survive. You basically have to plan that this is a way of life now. We are basically going to have to live with drought as a constant and so our planning is changing. Our infrastructure needs have to change. Uh, and then uh, larger questions posed for society is, you know, we probably have to make some larger, tougher choices about uh, can we continue growth in these certain areas? And if we are going to continue growth, what's going to have to give? Uh, what are we, how are we going to have to change agricultural practices? So we're going to have to take a look at some uh, tough choices because we can only do so much in managing a constant drought. And then some of this becomes uh, different kinds of choices that have to be made. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a lot of listeners from across the country and around the world. Um, and for those who live outside of the Southwest United States, um, you know, particularly in the U.S., you know, east of the Mississippi, 
they they can pretty much rely on precipitation, sometimes too much, um, as we've seen this week. And the water system in the West is is kind of a mystery to those folks. So I'd love for you to talk to us about the major water sources that supply water, particularly in California, and how a large-scale drought like the one we're in now makes a complicated system even more fragile. Sure. Uh, In the West, we've become accustomed to moving water long distances. We don't have um, water where necessarily where the people are. And then on top of that, we tend to have much more volatile conditions. You know, we, we go, we range from flood to drought and with very little in between. We don't have those nice kind of mild years with adequate rainfall. We either deal with flooding or we deal with drought. So to smooth out that volatility, a long time ago, we learned that we needed to build storage, uh, which is, you know, you know, large dams and we move water into groundwater banks and we bank our water in the wet years. And then, and we have to move it around to where the people are. And so in California, we've tapped into places and moved water around. We've moved water from the Owens Valley down to the city of Los Angeles. We've moved water from the Sierra Mountains over to the Bay Area communities of San Francisco and the East Bay and Oakland areas. And we've moved water also from the Colorado River into Southern California and also from the Northern Sierras. So we've built a whole system of aqueducts that crisscross California, moving water from our mountain ranges to the coastal communities, uh, all so that we can become a state of roughly 40 million people uh, and rely on these resources, but we do end up having to move the resources to the people. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I, I took a few days off work to go and photograph the current conditions at the Oroville Shasta, Folsom, and Los Vaqueros dams. And I actually arrived at the Oroville Dam the day after they shut down the hydroelectric plant there for the first time in its history since it opened in, I believe, 1967. And for our listeners who may not understand the significance of that fact, help us understand why this is such a big deal. Well, we we're had the last two years in California have been a record-breaking drought. And consecutive years. So very, very dry conditions in California. And you can see it, you know, throughout all, all the issues, you know, you're seeing farmland being fallowed. We're seeing wildfires explode earlier and earlier. Uh, so the impacts of climate change are really driving uh, and hotter weather are really driving our conditions. Now, what's happened is we've had to pull down our reservoirs with multiple dry years in a row. And so our reservoir storage is no longer what it was just a few years ago. And that results in less head and less ability. You know, the the water head behind it in the dam is what drives the turbines when we uh, make our hydroelectric power. And, uh, you know, with the shrinking reservoirs, we have, we're no longer even able to move the water. We don't have enough force behind it to move it through and turn the generators. So uh, Oroville's in that condition. And uh, if you look at Lake Mead on the Colorado River, Mm-hmm. It's only maybe a few years from the same condition of not being able to generate power. And we're seeing this in our reservoirs and a real loss of hydroelectric power, just one element of what's making climate change that much more difficult because that's a clean, renewable source of power that's being turned off because of the drought. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in addition to the lack of precipitation, many water agencies are also dealing with PFAS in their groundwater. You know, when we have less surface water to, to feed the need, how does this situation in the groundwater impact the drought situation? Yes. Yeah, so, we rely a lot on groundwater in California. I mean, that's pumping up wells, and we uh, try to, you know, we artificially replenish it, but a lot of it gets replenished just by rainfall and nature. And then sometimes we move our imported water and get it into the groundwater basins. And so Southern California gets roughly a third of all its water supply comes from groundwater pumping of wells. And that's been a typically good, reliable source of water, and we do get well, we don't get a lot of rainfall in Southern California, enough to keep those basins pretty fresh and pretty reliable. But we've been discovering chemicals in the water that we didn't used to be able to detect before. And that's because our technology has gotten so good at detection, we can test for materials. Uh, when I got in this business 25 years ago, we used to test for parts per million of uh, chemicals in water. Then it became parts per billion and now it's parts per quadrillion. And mm. so we can detect incredibly minute amounts of, of, of substances in water. And we don't always necessarily know if that has real health effects or not, but uh, it is worrisome to find that in there. And so the latest chemicals of concern, and we call these uh, constituents of emerging concern, because we're not exactly sure about the health impacts of them, but we are concerned, is a couple of... Um, they're, they're chemical chains, and they're called PFAS and PFOS, and those are stand for a long, you know, organic <laughs> alkaline names of, of types of chemical chains. Of, and they come from everyday products. Uh, you know, fleece, you know, outdoor, those outdoor fleece jackets and fleece blankets have our, our, have our artificial materials, and they have these um, chemical chains that were made to do that, uh, to make those materials. And when you wash them, Minute amounts get into the the into the clothes washing and then goes down to the sewer. And because they're so small, they come out through the uh, sewage treatment, and some of that water gets back into groundwater eventually, and it builds up. And we call these forever chemicals because they don't degrade. They as long as they're in the water, they will last there decades, hundreds of years. And so we are now finding parts per quadrillion of these chemical chains that we've introduced, and they're just ubiquitous. They, we use them in Teflon pans, and every time you wash your pan, a little bit gets into the sewage drain. Uh, we use them in all the fleece materials, artificial um, um, fabrics and uh, fire retardants and rugs treatments, and just you, the list goes on and on and on about where these chemicals come from and get into the water supply and eventually into the groundwater. And we've detected them throughout most of the groundwater in Southern California now. And we've been turning off wells where they get, where the numbers get high enough. And, and it's going to eventually potentially have significant impacts and loss of water, pushing us to rely more on imported water that's getting scarcer. So it's, it's a tough challenge for everybody down here uh, to, to manage these chemicals. Well, and, you know, managing these chemicals... Um, is a financial situation as well. And I imagine that as many water agencies are trying to deal with the expenses associated with the drought, and there always are, um, the expense of treating 
the groundwater for these types of chemicals is no inexpensive endeavor as well. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Jeff Keilinger. So please don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm so glad that you tuned in. Very important topic today and the perfect guest to help us break it down. Um, If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Jeff Keitlinger. He's the recently retired general manager and CEO of the Metropolitan Water District down in the LA area. And we are talking about the mega drought that we are currently in. You know, Jeff, during the last drought, and, and I know that that's kind of a, the wrong way to characterize it, but you know, we've, a lot of us have seen these in chunks rather than one long eternal drought. But during the last one, that kind of was 2012 to 2016-ish, um, there were several solutions being considered by the state of California. And, and I know all the many water agencies were involved. Um, how have any of those solutions changed in light of this current drought and this current realization that this is a way of life. Are the have the solutions changed since we last had you on in 2016? Well, in 2016, we were coming towards the end of a pretty tough drought cycle. In fact, uh, the 15 year 2015 was uh, not only was it the driest year in recorded history in California. Uh, we think it was the driest year in a roughly 1500 years, based on tree ring data. So. It was truly record-shattering. Um, 
and and everything went to emergency mode in California, yeah, because it was the end of a three four year drought cycle, and it was uh, a shattering year. So one of the positives was that in the past, what we've seen is the public, you know, they get very vigilant and they, you know, they don't shower, they take short showers and they don't water their lawns and and they really step up and help us to get through a drought. And then typically what we see is about two, three years later, water usage kind of rebounds pretty close to normal, what it was pre-drought. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is we haven't seen a rebound since 2016. Water usage has stayed significantly lower than it was before that drought. And I think that's attributed to a number of things. And much of them, I think people have made permanent lifestyle choices. Uh, among the choices, I think, is that you've seen a lot of lawns disappear in Southern California, outdoor turf, and be replaced with uh, native California plants, California friendly planting. And once the homeowners made that investment, taken out their lawn, put in uh, the, some native landscaping and and uh, decomposed granite and other uh, non-water-using features, it does, they don't go back. They don't replace their lawn in a couple of years. And so that's good news. And we've been able to get through this drought, frankly, easier than we did through 2015-16, because of those lifestyle changes that people have made. They really have adjusted and altered their water usage on a, on a, in a permanent manner, as opposed to just a temporary response to, a, to an emergency. And, and in terms of statewide solutions, you know, there was a point where we were looking at twin tunnels under the Delta, and I know that's been altered. On a statewide level, um, you know, have, what are some of the solutions that um, the state is looking at to deal with this situation? One of the things we can do, you know, we can work with consumers and work on their behavior, and we can do that in a rapid response approach. Uh, Building infrastructure typically takes about a decade of planning before you get something in the ground and operating. And so it doesn't really work as a drought response. It works as a preparation for climate change. So here in Southern California, uh, the Metropolitan Water District, we started planning in 2000 for these kinds of droughts. And among the things we built was uh, we built a $2 billion reservoir and uh, that came online in the early 2000s out by in um, Riverside County near Hammett called Diamond Valley Lake. And then just as important as building a big storage reservoir, and it holds 810,000 acre feet, which is the largest reservoir built in California in, um, in, in 50 years. But in addition to holding a lot of water, we also connected it with a billion dollar pipeline called, we call that the Inland Feeder. And it was specifically designed to only move water in wet years. And so essentially, this billion-dollar pipeline sits empty probably seven out of ten years. Hmm. But in those three years, the big wet years, it can fill up that reservoir in a matter of months. What would normally take three, four years to fill a reservoir, we can because we have this big oversized pipe waiting for flood years, we fill that reservoir in four months. And so through the last three drought cycles, we pulled down our reservoir system, waited for the big wet years, and filled it immediately in a single year. That's the kind of infrastructure California needs to build at a larger scale. But so far, all we've done is talk about it, think about Uh it, and do planning work on it. And we haven't broken ground. 
uh, Jerry, Governor Brown's twin tunnels system, that was intended to be kind of that wet year, take a big gulp in the wet years, uh, the flood years, and move it into their reservoir system. Uh, but it's still in the planning mode. It's been changed. Governor Newsom shrunk it from two tunnels to one tunnel. We still have a lot of opposition to it. And uh, there's been no no shovel breaking on it. More mm-hmm. storage has been proposed, new reservoirs. Uh, one of them up in Northern California called Sites Reservoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, they're still in planning mode. And one of the things we're going to have to probably force ourselves to do as a state is really take a hard look at some of our environmental laws and our planning laws and decide, are we moving fast enough to deal with climate change? I think the answer is that we're not. We Climate change is upon us. We are having to deal with it. And we have to make, we have to be more nimble. And we're seeing it in our firefighting, but we're seeing it in our water collection, our water transportation. We need some new infrastructure, and we need to move faster on building it. We don't. Mm-hmm. We're, we act as if we have a decade to keep planning and thinking about it, and we really need to start making decisions in, frankly, in a more of a real time mode. Yeah, I, and that's that's not a strong suit of our state or federal government. And I I think you're right. We're going to have to figure out how to move faster. I, when I was out taking pictures at the Oroville, Folsom, and Shasta dams, I, I took a drive around the area where the site's reservoir, you know, is supposed to go. And I mean, the roads alone won't handle the construction traffic. They're so, you know, narrow and, and I just don't see how that, you know, without some really quick, you know, investment that's going to come online anytime soon. And, and I think the the most aggressive year I've heard is 2030. I don't know if you've heard anything else, but, um, you know, that's, that's a long ways away if this continues to be dry. No, that's right. When we built our Diamond Valley Lake Reservoir for Metropolitan in the early 2000s, again, we had to spend two, three years of what we just called prep work, which was just, as you said, we had to improve all the roads and the infrastructure just so you could deliver the project. And then it was four years of construction after that. Uh, it was considered, um, you know, record speed. We built a $2 billion reservoir in a decade from start of planning to starting to fill water. And mm-hmm. so that's about as fast as you can go. Uh, yeah. And we're not even going that fast. But frankly, you know, we've been talking about sites for a decade. So yeah. if we actually got it online in 2030, it would be 20 years from mm-hmm. the beginning of planning. Mm-hmm. And 10 years is about as fast as you can go. Yeah. I want to talk to you about how water agencies, especially throughout the state of California, work together. Um, you, you know, I know you all have to work together and there's, you know, water transfers that take place and things like that. But in a very real sense, how do water agencies balance the need to recognize that, hey, we're all in a tough spot together, we're in this together, um, with their need to supply water to their service areas? You know, what does that partnership look like? I think it's been one of the more uh, positive trends I've seen in the last 20 years in my career. And when I first began um, working in the water business, you know, in their, certainly in the mid to late 90s, uh, there was a lot of competition uh, and, uh, and animosity among water agencies, particularly among sectors. 
the agricultural sector did not trust the urban sector. Uh, environmental groups did not trust either sector. And you know, basically, it was sort of a uh, it was considered sort of a zero sum game that if someone else moved their project forward, it'd probably hurt you. And so we spent a lot of time fighting each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the positive trends of this drought has been, I think, a, a forced realization that we're in this together and we just don't have time for legal battles and legal fights amongst each other. Uh, we have too many challenges to deal with to add that to the burden. Mm-hmm. And so I have seen much more cooperation uh, than at any other point in the last 20 years. And on the Colorado River, we've put together, you know, we used to always be in court and couple of trips to the U.S. Supreme Court, and as we fought wars between Arizona and California and the other states jumping in, uh, we haven't really been resorting to the courts at all in the last 20 years. The states have all worked together. We've implemented half a dozen major um, packs to share water, to share pain, to share cuts, uh, environmental planning documents that span multiple states to help restore ecosystem efforts, uh, multi-species efforts. Just, uh, it's really been a model of cooperation the last 20 years after decades of legal wrangling. And you've seen the same also true in California. We've been able to put together so many cooperative programs with the agricultural sector in the last 15 years. Mm Mm-hmm. That that's good to hear. I think that's the the right way to go. Um, now I've got a loaded question for you. <laughs> do local water <laughs> no <care>. agencies and <laughs> do local water agencies have the funding that they need for short term solutions to this current drought that we're in right here right now? By and large, they really don't. Uh, w- one of the fortunate things. We have, you know, from our history in Southern California was the creation of a regional agency, uh, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. Uh, Metropolitan was created in the 19, in the late 20s, early 30s, with the express purpose of building the Colorado River Aqueduct. And even Los Angeles, you know, the largest city growing at the time, could not afford it on its own. And so Mm -hmm. what they did was they formed a cooperative that all of Southern California pooled its resources to go build big projects, big water projects, such as the Colorado River Aqueduct, the financing of Hoover Dam, Parker Dam. And so Metropolitan acts as a huge regional planning agency and financier of these. And in that way, we served served 19 million people in Southern California, one in every two Californians. And so when you provide water to one in every two Californians, you spread your costs along a lot of ratepayers. And Metropolitan had the financial muscle to build things. Mm-hmm. But that was unique. Uh, most agencies are one-offs for cities or for a farming district. And mm-hmm. they don't generate enough money to build the kind of infrastructure we need as a state. We used to fund that by the state. The state of California financed the state water project. And the United States, uh, through the Bureau of Reclamation, financed all the big projects of the West. And the state and federal governments have gotten out of infrastructure financing in the last 50 years. And you've noticed very little infrastructure has been built the last 50 years as we stopped collecting taxes and we stopped funding them at the state and federal level. And and so it's maybe a loaded question, but the reality is Southern California is better prepared than most of the country because we 
are have a large ratepayer base, and we, we actually formed an entity to tackle these issues. Mm-hmm. But most of California and most of the West is is nowhere near as prepared because they just don't have they they weren't structured to do that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Everybody's so glad that you could join us. And just in case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Jeff Keitlinger. He is the recently retired general manager and CEO of the largest water utility in the U.S., the Metropolitan Water District, located down in the L.A. area. We're talking mega drought today, folks. And now we're going to be talking about some solutions. And Jeff, You know, this is not just a California problem. As you just mentioned before we went to commercial, you know, 50 years ago, the federal government, our state government, they were investing in infrastructure um, and and they really haven't been. And that's why so much of our infrastructure, uh, not just water, our energy infrastructure and, and whatnot, you know, transportation infrastructure is so decrepit in so many areas of the country. And so, you know, in the coming 10 to 20 years, as we talked about, we need to we need to giddy up on this and stop talking about it and make some changes. What kinds of infrastructure changes do we need to make at the federal, the state, and the local level to continue delivering clean, safe water to our residents and our businesses? Well, we have to 
realize that this is something that our, our forefathers built uh, a system and basically bequeathed it to us, and we've been living off it, but we have not been doing our job in reinvesting, and we're leaving a dilapidated system for our children and grandchildren. And we need state and federal government. This is a matter of national importance. Uh, California basically feeds the nation. We provide uh, somewhere between 80 and 90% of all the fresh fruit and vegetables consumed in the United States, 90% Mm -hmm. of the world's almonds. Uh, So we not only feed the nation, we kind of feed the world. And Mm -hmm. that is national food security. It is a national issue that requires attention at at the congressional level. And it, what I've been pleased to see is uh, Congress and the Biden administration actually take it up. Mm-hmm. And they've taken up infrastructure financing and funding, frankly, for the first serious time in, in uh, several administrations that we've seen some real progress made. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the kind of stepping up that we need to see. We need to see billions of dollars invested in our infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, as you pointed out, it's not just water, but water is critical. In the American Southwest, we need federal attention to be paid on the Colorado River that supplies water for 40 million people. Uh, what that means is upgrading reservoirs, up changing our um, system of how we move the water. Mm-hmm. It does also require people making tough decisions and saying, okay, we're going to have to learn to do with less. Uh, does that mean some growth projects get put on hold? Uh, we have to look at maybe we have to take some farmland out of production strategically and focus on smarter farming. We need to invest in infrastructure to help farmers uh, farm more efficiently. So it's going to take a huge multi-state effort, and we need the states to cooperate, but we really need the leadership at the federal level. I, that's where it has to start, and it's an important enough issue that we do need Congress to weigh in, start looking at it, and find ways to finance this. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know that um, you know infrastructure and public dollars being spent on infrastructure doesn't occur without good public policy. So, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and, and put in the public policy changes that will need to be made in order to, you know, to create these infrastructure projects, what kinds of things would you want to see in place? We really need a, a, a collective decision-making process that really looks at how we're going to change how we grow. Uh, we can't just have growth take place uh, without thought of consequences. So to the extent we're going to have continued population growth, we have to make some tough choices about, okay, where is that water supply going to come from to allow for that growth? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do without? Uh, We never like to do that part of the discussion about what we're going to do without. We always want to do the and part. (laughs) How can we have more? (laughs) And we need to kind of have that conversation and, and we need to have it to be a public conversation. We need the public to think about this and weigh in on that. Mm-hmm. And that's going to require some thoughtful leadership. And money can make things go further. And that's where Congress and our state governments can realize uh, we have to focus on funding some of these issues to really help that happen. It can't mm-hmm. just happen at the local level. We've been trying to finance large-scale infrastructure at the local level, and we're just not keeping up with climate change. This has to happen at the state and federal level. Mm -hmm. Agreed. 
You know, we talked about how local water agencies are, are partnering well. Um, I know that Metropolitan Water District has to deal with other states as well, and that's going fine. But, you know, California has no shortage of special interest groups that will definitely, we can predict it, they will get involved in our water future. Um, How can we navigate the complex legal and social structures that may stand between where we are today and the kind of water system we need? You have to start the conversation early and you have to, you just realize you're going to have to take time. We do need to bring the public in. We do have a lot of many stakeholders and they have a voice that needs to be heard. And so you have to start that process and it can't just be the good old boy water districts in the, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the room kind of cutting a deal and, and then, mm-hmm. and then sort of springing it on the world. Those days have gone and the mm-hmm. public expects to be engaged and has a right to be engaged. So you have to start early and you just have to take the time to do that and to really educate and to really bring in a lot of stakeholders. At the same time, you can't succumb to, you know, paralysis by analysis and just say, well, we need to keep studying this. You have to force decision making. And, you know, we live in a democratic society and some people aren't going to like that result. Maybe they're going to resort to the courts, but we do have to force decision-making as well once we've had an adequate time to have that conversation so that we can have informed decisions. And so Mm -hmm. you're going to have to do both. You're going to have to bring in the public, bring in the stakeholders, but also have a decision-making process that results in decisions being made and then, and process and progress being made so we can move forward. Right. I think, you know, that's, (laughs) that's been tough to come by sometimes in California because there is so much litigiousness around these issues, but um, but I like the idea of starting the conversation early and you know letting letting people say what's on their mind and and have their ideas heard. But at the end of the day, um, we're going to have to get pragmatic and move forward. You know, when we we were talking about some of the funding that's going to be needed um, and what it's going to take to create a climate change resilient water system. What kind of sacrifices do you think we need to be prepared to make in order to pay for this work? I mean, you said it perfectly when you said everybody wants to talk about and, (laughs) Um, but, you know, we don't have an infinite supply of tax dollars or tax base and, and all of that. What are some of the sacrifices that you think we may be able to, to, to make in order to pay for this work? Well, the good news, I think, is that when you look at the macro large picture, we have supplies. We do have water supply. Yes, it's shrinking and we're taxing it too hard, but we do have the supplies. And so we have at least the fundamental resources to make decisions with and to just and now we have to actually force that tough decision making. Uh, some of it will probably will clearly have to come from agriculture. 70, 80% of the water being used by people is being used by agriculture. And some of that will need to be shifted to the urban sector as the urban sectors continue to grow. Uh, but we can't just allow urban sectors to grow without figuring out, okay, where are they going to get that water? How are they going to pay for it? How are they going to work with the agricultural sector and minimize the impacts? So, it's going to take that conversation between the agricultural and the urban sectors. How do we work together? How can urban sectors finance smarter, more efficient farming? 
uh, well, obviously we need to continue to eat. So it's not like we can, Mm -hmm. you know, gut Mm -hmm. farming. We need it and it's essential, uh, but we have to do it smarter, more efficiently. And some of it will probably have to be taken out and replaced. And we're going to have to also build infrastructure that deals with flooding and climate change. And that's Mm going to have that massive infrastructure will have to be kind of state and federal. And then we're going to need partnerships at the local level between the urban sector and the ag sector um, to solve their local immediate demand issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All that is doable, but it takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and it's going to take some strong leadership. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to ask you a question about technology because, you know, sometimes when you talk about water, people will, you know, feel one way or the other about different technologies, you know, potable reuse, uh, desalination, you know, each of these has some kind of an emotional response from some people. Are there any technologies or long-term solutions that you would consider unfeasible or undesirable, or do you think we need an all-of-the-above approach? I think by and large, you need an all of the above approach, but that doesn't mean you just sort of sort of say 20% to each of them. You, mm-hmm. you look at which, and it's going, to region, it's going to differ region by region. So where you have large cities, large population bases, that means you have a lot of sewage. Mm-hmm. And that potable reuse makes a lot of sense. And Metropolitan is pursuing um, what would be the largest recycled water facility in partnerships with the Los Angeles County Sanitation District. Mm-hmm. This would be the largest recycled water facility in the nation. Wow. And we also had an innovative partnership to explore sharing that resource with Las Vegas. And the way that would work is they would finance recycled water in the LA area, and we would swap Colorado River water back uh, through exchange with them for the financing. That kind of innovative cross-state regional partnering makes a lot of sense and is very doable and really helps the financing move forward. So mm-hmm. I, where you have the large urban areas, potable reuse makes sense there mm-hmm. to really focus on that. Uh, where you have areas where you really have difficulty, where there isn't local groundwater, there aren't local supplies, mm-hmm. and you're on the coast, mm-hmm. ocean desal can make a lot mm-hmm. of sense there. San Diego's invested in ocean desal. Mm-hmm. And San Diego is a place where they have very little groundwater, almost none. Mm-hmm. And so having an alternative supply to imported water that's local makes a lot of sense and um, and it's great for water security for them in case of earthquake or other emergency. Mm -hmm. So I think you're going to see some niche market in California for desal. And so it really sort of depends. You look at the local area and then figure out which technology boost you can do to help them solve their water demands and needs. That makes perfect sense, a customization. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Dolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Dolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. So glad to have you with us. So, you know, Jeff, you mentioned this earlier in the show, but I want to touch on it just a little bit more. During the last drought period, you know, roughly 2012 to 2016, as you mentioned, a lot of Californians took significant steps to be more water efficient. Um, And so a lot of the low-hanging fruit to reduce our water consumption has already been done. Um, and, and I know that just two nights ago, uh, my own local water agency declared a drought emergency and they're asking for 15% reduction um, f- for everybody. So for the average Californian, what are we going to need to do <laughs> in order to further reduce water consumption when we've made all those lifestyle changes already? Yeah, the the good news is that most Californians, and particularly Southern Californians, have really already made adjustments to their lifestyle. Uh, pretty much throughout Southern California, everyone now has a low-flush toilet and a low-flow shower. Those, those changes were made in the 80s and 90s. And now you're seeing most people, they have the front-loading um, clothes washing machines and water-efficient dish washing machines. And so you're seeing the installation through, across the board of water efficiency that's kind of hardwired into the house. And that's pretty much already been done. There's, you know, there's still people maybe with a, that can upgrade their dishwasher or clothes washer. And we urge them to do that. And we have rebates available, but most of that's been done. So the focus has been the last 10 years has been probably on the outdoor area. And we've been trying to get people to replace lawn, particularly front lawn or ornamental turf in their median, uh, with something that doesn't need watering, than California native plants. And that movement's really taken hold. Uh, Metropolitan made a huge investment on that in the drought in 50, 2015 and 16, where normally we would, Metropolitan would spend something in the range of $10, $15 million a year on drought um, turf replacement for drought. Uh, throughout the whole of Southern California. So in the scheme of things, not a huge amount of money. And then we spent $350 million in an 18-month period. So we basically put that program on steroids and really gave it a jump start. And, and you've seen that take hold. And, and it's nice. I think most, most Southern Californians have said, you know, I, I am actually not averse to not having a lawn. I think mm-hmm. that actually looks nice planting native plants there. So that's, I think, where people can probably do their most bang for their buck is focusing on the outdoors, uh, removing turf where you can, 
keeping your trees and limiting your watering. Yeah, I think that's going to be, you know, outdoor use is is historically one of the biggest draws. So I think that's great, great advice. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names, but we're in the midst of a gubernatorial recall. And I heard one of the candidates say, the first thing I do if I were elected is build a pipe to the Mississippi River. And, you know, you and I know that's nonsense, but in order for voters to be intelligent and engaged citizens who vote for public policymakers that will make sensible and necessary changes to our water system, what does the average American need to know? Well, I think what you need to know is that climate change is real and it's ground zero for climate change is water. Uh, it's, it shifts and changes water. I, you know, there's a host of other impacts. You're, you know, wildfires, uh, heat in cities and heat problems. But water is kind of ground zero because it shifts how much there's rain. It dries up with the heat. It uh, limits the snowpack that we rely on. And so water policy is kind of ground zero with climate change. And so we need the average citizen needs to pay attention to it. This is important. Are we going to have enough water to live here for the next 20 years? Is it going to be affordable? And you need to demand answers from your politicians. And it can't just be, oh, we'll just go tap the Mississippi. It has to be really thoughtful. It has to be serious answers and, and, and try and get answers and try and force politicians to do it. I used to have politicians in Sacramento tell me all the time, I understand you think these water issues are important, Jeff. You're the head of the Metropolitan. That makes sense. But my constituents, they have 10 issues, and water is never one of them because you guys provide the water, and that's not really seen as a concern. We need the public to start saying, this is a concern. I am worried about how are we going to have sufficient water supplies for my children and grandchildren to stay in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, kind of starts with knowing where your water comes from <laughs> and, and yeah, knowing exactly. the vulnerabilities of that, you know, and that's something that, you know, my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, when we're working with schools um, and, and we're working with our, our interns and, and high school students, we that's like the very first place we start. Where does your water come from and where are the vulnerabilities in that system? I want to ask you another really important question, and I want you to take your time on this because I think that there are two issues colliding here, climate change and social justice. And I'm interested in knowing how you think we can incorporate environmental and social justice into our plans for California's water future. It's it's a very good question and a very complex issue. We have our historically, I mean, in modern history, I mean, really coming starting from the 1970s and 80s moving forward, are, well, I'll start even back. So before the 1970s, 80s, and going back to the gold rush time, the emphasis was on getting water to where it provided the most economic value. And we didn't really care much about the environment or people or impacts to Native Americans. We just did it. We built our dams. We built our aqueducts. We threw money into it. And we made 
the Central Valley bloom. We made we provided water for industry, water for mining, and we developed a state that was an economic powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Then in the 70s and 80s, we began to realize that this came at enormous environmental cost. And late, and for the last 50 years, we've been focusing on how to continue to provide water, but doing it in a more environmentally friendly way. And how do we really try to take care of fish and species and the environment? And it's really only been the last few years that we've started focusing on uh, the environmental justice issues. And when you talk about maybe uh, a big chunk of the Central Valley not being farmed, well, that has real social economic issues. You're mm-hmm. talking tens of thousands of jobs lost, probably 50,000, 100,000 jobs lost. That's people, you know, many of these are immigrant communities and communities of color. and These are people that are all losing their livelihood. Also, the ability to provide food at an at a affordable cost gets impacted. And so we have to start looking at those consequences and what those decisions mean and what they mean for people as well as just for the environment. Mm-hmm. And that, that we're in, frankly, we're in catch-up mode on that. We have not been doing that. It's really only been discussed the last 10 years or so, but mm-hmm. it, the decision-making process behind it still hasn't even been addressed. How, how do we do it? Mm-hmm. And how do we balance the needs of the environment, the needs of people, and people of color, and, and people who are most immediately impacted by climate change? And that's going to be a significant challenge. And that's, mm-hmm. that's part of that conversation I was talking about. We've got to start getting people in a room and have those stakeholders at the table so that they can get their viewpoints heard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that there are some really incredibly intelligent and thoughtful and um, comprehensive thinkers out there that can help us with that. And I think that it's also time to start thinking about the kinds of education that our future leaders are going to need in order to incorporate those issues into the the water system they will inherit. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for being on with us today on Go Green Radio. It's been great having you on and getting your perspective on this vital issue. I just want to say thank you to our listeners as well. We'll be here same place, same time next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then... Have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.